morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. With me on this fine Friday morning is Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And uh, we're in the midst of a thought experiment looking at what could we do to propose a constitution that would take care of the problems that have obviously arisen. I mean, all you need to do is look, look, uh, take a, even a brief, very brief look at Washington, D.C. today, and you'll see that most of everything they're doing yeah, is a violation of the Constitution. <laughs> they swear an oath to uphold this document. By the way, they are swearing that oath before Almighty God, and Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says that they have no excuse. When you swear an oath before Almighty God, and then you say, well, I didn't quite read the document, or I didn't understand. God doesn't listen to such excuses. Instead, uh, Ecclesiastes 5 says that uh, God comes to destroy the work of the hands of such people. So uh, we have a lot of oath breakers in Washington, D.C. today, and uh, those oath breakers are not going to ultimately get away with it, although for the time being, it might appear that they prosper and they grow extremely wealthy from the kind of corruption they're involved with. But uh, those are only a temporary thing. The word of God tells us that judgment ultimately falls and the wicked uh, will be condemned to eternal torment. But we're focusing on what would it take to create a constitution that would so restrict the federal government that it wouldn't be doing the kinds of things it is currently doing. What are the changes uh, that would need to be made uh, and and given fallen sinful human nature, we know that even when we make changes, the, the wicked are going to be working overtime to find out ways to subvert even those changes. So we've got to really do a, an excellent job. And I call this a thought experiment because I'm not actually calling for a brand new constitution today. I'm calling for a restoration uh, of the founding principles that if we had honest people in office and uh, willing to follow the limits set by the founders, well, we, we could get back to that, with the exception, now, however, of Alexander Hamilton. As, as uh, I think, Phil, you're going to make a note on his case this morning that uh, I, I basically think we can conclude he was dishonest, that uh, he claimed that, uh, you know, this limited enumerated delegated powers, nothing could be changed. And it's a, it's a fixed standard, so to speak. But as soon as he was the Treasury Secretary under George Washington and the first administration of the brand new government, uh, he began to say, well, there's these implied powers, things like creating a national bank and so on. And all of a sudden, the words of the Constitution don't exactly mean what they say and what they intended uh, when they ratified it at their, uh, following their Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. So uh, perhaps outside of him, though, I think the other actors were honest in believing that they were creating a limited form of government. I dare say if they were to be somehow transported back to our day today, and, you know, if they were to take a look at what's happening in Washington, D.C., I think they would be horrified. I think they would be truly astonished because even perhaps Alexander Hamilton would also be astonished that what has been created is so far out of line with what they intended. They might wonder, what happened? You know, who who drank the Kool-Aid? Uh, <laughs> who was uh, inhaling the uh, toxic fumes and, and wound up misinterpreting and abusing and twisting the Constitution so egregiously that we've come to the state that we are in uh, today. So, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts this morning on the, on the uh, proposed idea of this Constitution 
that would correct those problems. Well, for the concept of representative government to work properly, it must be viewed as a two-way street. Public officials must be above corruption and accountable for their behavior in office. But the citizenry must also be informed and engaged. The challenge with this form of government is that there is so little experience with it, and not all the experience has been positive. Wikipedia asserts that recorded history begins with the accounts of the ancient world around the 4th millennium BC, and it coincides with the invention of writing. The claims of historians to the contrary, ancient Athens was not a democracy, but an imperial oligarchy as the Melians tragically discovered according to Thucydides. Ancient Rome had its republic, but it was replaced with a top-down operated empire. The Dutch appear to have had a truly representative government for a period of time before reverting to monarchy as described by Wikipedia. The Dutch Republic existed from 1579 to 1795 and was a confederation of seven provinces, which had their own governments and were very independent in a number of so-called generality lands. These latter uh, were governed directly by the state's general, the federal government. The state's general were seated in The Hague and consisted of representatives of each of the seven provinces. The Swiss state, that nation's adoption of representative government, to 1291. Swiss government was highly distributed to the individual cantons. Venice is often cited as the longest lasting of the Italian maritime republics. And it is true that its initial leader, or so Ipato, was elected by the people. But the history of the Republic of Venice is the history of a series of dynasties establishing themselves to rule the so-called republic. Considering all three examples of representative government, only one, Switzerland, emerges as a truly sustaining government in which power has been driven down to the lower levels and the people. This contrasts with the dominant model of government, top-down government, usually created through conquest. Humanity can be excused for tolerating this kind of tyranny since it has been so ingrained into the culture. But what should only make populations but that should only make populations more sensitive to the dangers of top-down government. Montesquieu was aware of this danger when he cautioned in the spirit of laws that republics don't work on a continental scale. Large republics tend to become imperial. If the United States had exhibited no imperial tendencies before the Spanish-American War of 1898, from that point on, the United States were clearly at imperial power. The point of this history is to emphasize that the establishment of representative government on a continental basis is not intuitive and requires the participation of an electorate that is particularly literate in constitutional law and economics to allow it to work. James Madison, often called the father of the Constitution 1787, was the acknowledged student of government in the founding generation. He sought to balance distributed government at the state level with sufficient federal power. For a period of time, it seemed to work. But the tendency toward imperialism was never squashed. Some would say that it was evident in the war between the states. But in any case, the tendency was apparent by the Spanish-American War. Madison's model of an ideal government relied heavily upon an informed, engaged electorate, in addition to mechanisms such as the separation of powers and checks and balances. The model also relied upon the ele that electorate coming together to vote federal representatives every two years and a president every four years. Ideally, office holders who violated their oaths of office to support the Constitution would be voted out of office, and candidates 
who promised to violate the Constitution would be bypassed in favor of those who would support the Constitution. The system was destined to failure at the outset. Too often, candidates who spent more on beer and whiskey for voters won offices. Today, the stakes are higher. Which political party is more likely to grant the poor cell phones and food stamps? Once there was a hope that a bottom-up education system would moderate the worst attributes of democracy, but that now has reversed with a federal government assuming it knows best with top-down directed educational programs like Common Core. If there is an assumption behind the current system of voting, it is that the politi that political and economic ignorance aggregates into political wisdom across the electorate. All that is necessary is to get out the vote, and numbers will overcome ignorance and narrow self-interest. Reality is that individual ignorance is aggregated into self-assured aggregate ignorance, the most tempting incentive for political charlatans. H.L. Mencken once commented, Democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it, good and hard. A new constitution is not a panacea. It will correct tolerance for corruption within the electorate. A new constitution, created under the assumption that the federal government must truly be the servant of the people and their immediate representatives, the states, reduces the scope of federal government to what is constitutional. Today, not even the most educated and engaged citizen can help to monitor the operation of the all-commanding federal government. Its critics have suggested that 90% of what involves the federal government today is unconstitutional. That is probably true of both the content of legislation and the cost of federal government. If a tightly written new constitution existed and 90% of unconstitutional legislation were eliminated, government by the people would have a chance because its costs would be low and its scope limited to something that could be monitored by informed, engaged citizens. This logic is the basis for two significant changes in a new constitution. First, every citizen current in the obligation to pay the federal government operation allotment would be eligible to full voting privileges provided, and this is the second, that citizen has passed a lifetime constitution certification test. Both ideas are controversial according to current standards, but it is important to understand that the current system is not working. Let's get into these ideas a little deeper. First, federal government operation allotment. Under the Constitution, the federal government operation allotment is a charge made for the operation of limited, enumerated, powered federal government, the cost of which is met equally by all voting citizens. It is similar to a to federal tax under Article 8 of the uh, Articles Confederation, which states all charges of war and all other expenses that should be incurred for the common defense or general welfare and allowed by the United States and Congress assembled shall be defrayed out of the common treasury, which should be supplied by the several states in proportion to the value of all land within each state, granted to or surveyed for any person as such land and the buildings and improvements thereon shall be estimated according to such mode as the United States and Congress assembled shall from time to time direct and appoint. The taxes for paying that proportion shall be laid and levied by the authority and direction of the legislatures of the several states within the time agreed upon by the United States in Congress assembled. There are differences, however. Under the Articles of Confederation, the allocation was made based upon property values, which would be a nightmare to calculate and administer. 
There's also the question about fairness of assessing charges based upon property. This could be justified if the purpose of a federal government were only to protect property. But the primary purpose of government is to protect citizens and all of their rights, including the right to property. A more just calculation of the allotment is that the costs of government should be borne by all citizens equally because all should enjoy those services equally. Unfortunately, that principle comes into conflict with the ability to pay uh, in reality. Our willingness to avoid putting people in prison for debt requires that we acknowledge some individuals will not be able to afford the cost of federal government, as low as it would be under a new constitution. Until those are able to meet their financial obligation, to include prior year's obligations that may not have been met, these citizens, while retaining all their rights, would not be eligible to vote in federal elections. The implementation of such a voting system would not burden the federal government as tax collector. State governments currently manage voter registration that would continue to do so. State governments would manage the collection of the federal allotment and ultimately determine who may or may not vote. Constrained by federal constitutional rules to include the vote may not be denied solely upon the sex of the citizen nor the age beyond a certain lower level limit, which is currently 18. Critics of this method of funding will assert that, like other funding schemes, it is subject to abuse. They will be correct, but the question remains, what is the optimal funding system of not the perfect system? For example, there will always be the case of a forgiving father who pays the allotment for his prodigal son. But that sort of injustice appears throughout society and is tolerated because life is not perfect. The question of political parties or special interest buying votes is quite another matter. The simple assumption is that since politicians and special interests have been successful in dispensing beer and whiskey on election day and promising cell phones and food stamps for the poor on the election trail, these forces will continue to find a way to corrupt elections. The answer to this, however, is the answer to many questions in life. Follow the money trail. Corruption occurs in politics because the risk-reward ratio makes it a good investment under the current rules. Those rules change significantly under a new constitution. The opportunity to invest in politicians exists today for three reasons. One, the Constitution of 1787 is often written ambiguously. Two, over centuries, we have become tolerant of Alexander Hamilton's implied powers rationale. And three, those who operate within the current federal system believe they have unlimited financial resources. None of these reasons apply under a new constitution, particularly the last, which denies the federal government the ability to tax and inflate without limit. The risk-reward ratio of investing in corrupt politicians and corrupt special interests changes dramatically under a new constitution. The money trail of political corruption is minimized. Some critics will complain that the federal government operational allocation is simply a poll tax under a new label. The National Museum of American History has this to say about the implementation of poll taxes in the South. Begun in the 1890s as a legal way to keep African Americans from voting in Southern states, poll taxes were essentially a voting fee. Eligible voters were required to pay their poll tax before they could cast the ballot. A grandfather clause excused some poor whites from payment if they had an ancestor who voted before the Civil War, but there were no exemptions. For African Americans. Clearly, the federal government operation allocation is not a poll tax designed to exclude African Americans or any other group from voting. 
It is only designed to exclude those who are unable to bear the cost of the citizen's responsibility for the constitutional operation of the federal government. This is a discouragement to politicians and special interests from promoting corrupt wealth distribution schemes. There will be the related criticism, criticism that a new constitution, as described, beggars rich over the poor. That is the reverse of what should be expected. The current system favors the politically connected at the expense of the politically unconnected. Are there individuals who have been able to enrich themselves under the current system? There should be no doubt about that. But empirically, measuring the increasing wealth of the rich versus the increasing poverty of the poor is too complex an exercise to provide any useful insights. It's far more reasonable to describe the differences in the flow of power which is a major determinant in the accumulation of wealth. The first thing we notice in comparing economies under the current system with the new constitution is the stark difference in the flow of power. The current system power flows towards Washington, D.C., and the current federal governing class to include all of those who are net beneficiaries of the system. In other words, power and resources are moving into public consumption sector as more broadly defined, and away from the private productive sector, where true savings arise. Most private savings tend to achieve optimal productivity gains, which benefit all instead of just the governing class. They are the prerequisite to upward mobility of the middle and lower economic classes. The most accurate theoretic measurement of current well-being is disposable income. Unfortunately, disposable income remains conceptual because it's not capable of measurement, being calculated in use by units of currency like the dollar. But according to the Federal Reserve System's admission, the value of the dollar has diminished by 94% since 1914. This is due primarily to the federal government and its agent, the Federal Reserve System. A new constitution shuts down that opportunity explicitly. Nor can the federal government siphon off wealth from the productive sector for unconstitutional projects and activities. With the rewards of production and innovation free to produce wealth, both those who have contributed conspicuously to the increased wealth and workers in general benefit. Upward mobility is encouraged and economic class becomes increasingly meaningless. Let's look at the Constitution certification test idea. Just as with the idea of individual citizen responsibility for the federal government operation allocation, so too the idea of testing of voting citizens for constitutional literacy is bound to energize critics. As mentioned before, some believe that constitutional illiteracy is excusable because mystically that can be aggregated into political wisdom by the sheer numbers of the electorate. Thus, the will of the majority, whatever that means, becomes something greater the wisdom to act for the general welfare. Never mind that some of those terms are not measurable and sometimes not even definable. The more sophisticated criticism is that it is impossible to desire test in the discipline of political science that is truly objective. The flaw to that line of thinking, however, is that testing really exists on a continuous scale from most objective to the least objective. Most math tests would be considered primarily objective, whereas there is room for a great deal of subjectivity in the social sciences. But even within the social sciences, such as politics, there is a significant range of objectivity in tests. As an example, consider this hypothetical test question. What minimum wage rate should be set by the federal government? 
Not even the best economists are capable of answering that question objectively. And that, and they to try are relying primarily on their personal ideological framework. Now consider this hypothetical multiple choice question about a new constitution. What is the form of government described in Article 2 of a new constitution? A. Monarchy. B. Democracy. C. Federation formed by sovereign Republican states vesting limited enumerated powers in the federated government, or D, empire. Having read the new constitution, only C can be accepted as an accurate answer. Even critics of testing citizens for their knowledge of a constitution should recognize the second question as fair and objective. It would be impossible to create an objective test of the constitution of 1787 because of its ambiguities and contradictions. The problem is magnified once Hamilton's implied powers are admitted. But a new constitution would be specifically designed to eliminate the ambiguities and the implied powers exception would no longer apply. Article 3 of a new constitution is a new concept in constitutional law in the sense that it formalizes the responsibility of a voting citizen. But the concept of representative government has always implied this. John F. Kennedy had a critical insight into government of, by, and for the people when he offered this challenge. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Thank you, Phil. Especially thank you for the illustrations we have in history of republics that have existed in the past. And uh, some of those republics more successful than others. Obviously, Rome didn't wind up very well for the citizens of Rome after the republic fell and became the empire. But uh, as you point out, perhaps the Swiss are the only ones that have had successful multi uh, century after century, a successful republic. But I would add one one to your list that uh, one that I think often gets overlooked, and that's the republic that began at Mount Sinai. And that is when Moses came down Mount Sinai. He came with a set of commandments. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments, but far more than just the Ten Commandments, Moses brought to the children of Israel a structure of government that was a republic. It was a republic based upon law that was given there at Mount Sinai. It was uh, established in a very highly decentralized fashion. That is, there were 13 uh, specific tribes. Only 12 of those tribes were actually given territory. We'll talk about that 13th tribe in a moment because I think that's one of the critical pieces that that we might miss uh, as we seek to analyze what's gone wrong and and how do we fix it. Uh, but those uh, those 12 tribes, they on their own had the majority of the governing to do. That is, the uh, the court system existed in the 12 tribes. And yes, there was an appeal system that could go all the way up to Moses, uh, but primarily issues were going to be handled at the local level, at the level of the the, uh, city in which, uh, or the area around the city where the crime was committed. So there was a a judicial system. uh, And in one sense, a legislative system wasn't necessary because they had the law. The law was given to them by God on Mount Sinai. Many, many details of that law uh, are recorded for us in scripture, things like uh, you're to build a, a wall around your house if you have a flat roof so that, uh, you know, somebody by accident doesn't fall off your roof and, and injure themselves and so on. So anyway, there's a whole lot of detail in the law of Moses that it, that is uh, there. But the executive branch was really the enforcement of the law and the punishment of the law, again, was mostly at the level of the the tribe itself, what we would call the states. Oddly enough, we started with 13 states. They had uh, 12 tribes. And uh, the, the process of punishment 
most of that was handled on a local level, only occasionally would something go all the way up the chain of appeals to Moses. And by the way, it was a, an appeal from a court that was established at the level of tens, and that's every, every community that had 10 families, they would appoint someone to a judicial position. And then if there was an appeal from that court system, it would be to the next level where there was 50 families. So a, a community, say a county or something that had 50 families, the next level beyond that was hundreds. And it's very interesting because in English common law, uh, that, that was imported here to the states. And uh, I know in our, our state here, one of the colonial states of Maryland had uh, sections called hundreds. And those hundreds would be reflecting that biblical standard back at Exodus 18, that would be a hundred families in one area, one jurisdiction, and that'd probably be akin to what we would call a county today. But uh, And then there was the top level that was thousands, that a thousand families, there would be a, a court system at that level. And ultimately, the Supreme Court in that system was Moses himself, to which an appeal had to go through all four levels before it would, would come uh, to Moses. And that, that's described again in Exodus uh, 18.20. But the fascinating, fascinating thing about Exodus 18.20 is it speaks about everyone being trained to know the law. That is, the people were to know the law. It wasn't some task that just some experts often in you know, law school or in the Supreme Court. It wasn't just for those experts. Everyone was to be taught the law. And this is part of the task that was given to that 13th tribe, the tribe that was never given any uh, territory as a tribe. Actually, they were given cities. I think there was 48 uh, Levitical cities, but the task of the Levites spread throughout the other 12 tribes in these 48 Levitical cities where they they had their own personal property, but as a tribe, they didn't have a, a territory, they didn't have a state. But their task, the task and the job of the Levites was to train the people in the law of God. Their job was to take the law of God, expound it, and teach every single person in society so that everyone would know the law. And and Phil, my reference here to this kind of missing link, you've referred to it several times. We need to have a test that people can competently pass a test on, on the Constitution. Uh, we, we see that our education system fails to teach. You know, well, most of them don't even teach civics anymore. I've talked to people who are 80 years old and, and they remember a course on civics. And I've asked, well, you know, did you ever look at more than the U.S. Constitution? Did you ever look at the state constitution? They said, nope. We never paid any any attention at all to the Maryland state constitution. Yeah, we did some in, in the U.S. constitution. But of course, today, uh, the government-run schools don't even bother to teach the U.S. constitution, let alone the state constitution. So we're producing citizens who are not equipped to know what the law is, to know what the standard, the supreme law of, of the country is, the U.S. constitution, or the supreme law of their state, the state constitution. So I'm fascinated by looking at um, uh, the Hebrew Republic, and it was a republic. Many people forget that before the Hebrew monarchy, with the kings who were famous like uh, King Saul and King David and Sol King Solomon, so before the Hebrew monarchy was the Hebrew Republic. The time recorded uh, uh, in the days of Joshua, in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, and also in the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. These are, and, and the beginning of the book of Samuel, where the people made a decision, a, a disastrous decision actually for themselves. They said they wanted a king. They were tired of being a republic. They wanted a tyrannical king to rule over them. And Samuel warns them. You can read it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You don't want this, this king. This king is going to tax you heavily. How heavily? He's going to take 10%. Oh, 10%? Oh, oh, that's all? 
Yeah, today in America, we say, wow, if we could get away with just 10% that our federal, state, and local governments take for us, we'd be rejoicing. But Sandy said their, their taxes that they were going to pay were hugely increased from what they paid under the Republic uh, to 10%. And then the king would build armies and the king would have a standing army. And the king would, anyway, the king would have enormous expenditures, enormous wealth was going to be sucked out of the people's pockets, out of their work, the fruit of their labor. And was going to go to the monarchy. And perhaps we see the height of that with Solomon and his enormous building projects and tremendous wealth and so on. But the, the key that it, I think it, 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 it has failed in our republic was this key of educating citizens who know the law and who know the standard by which uh, the government is supposed to be functioning. That is our U.S. Constitution and state constitutions. And if you ask citizens who don't know the law, don't have the standard, we have a real problem because what are they going to elect? Who are they going to put into office? I had a fascinating experience uh, this past week with uh, debating a delegate in the House of Delegates in, in Maryland. So that's the House, uh, not the Senate of Maryland. And this House of Delegates was uh, advocating for constitutional convention and you know uh, convention of states, Article 5 convention, whatever you'd like to call it. Uh, but I made the point in that debate that we have a constitution today that's not being obeyed. So what if you made all kinds of amendments to that constitution uh, and, well, then they didn't obey any of those amendments? Would that do us any good? And, and he was arguing, oh, well, we got to do something. It's a terrible mess. And I agree, it's a terrible mess. But one thing I pointed out, and it's interesting to see, by the way, as a sidebar, you know that you're winning a debate when your opponent goes ad hominem. That is, he begins to attack you personally. He stops arguing about the issues that begins calling you names <laughs> or or saying you're a jerk or things like that. And then you know, well, you're winning the argument because, well, he doesn't have any good arguments to respond to what you're saying. And he did at one point turn to that ad hominem attack and stop talking about the issues. But he did so after I made a point that he, along with the other delegates, failed to do their duty in 2020 during the scandemic. Yeah, that's what I call it, was a scam on the, on the American people. Because the governor of our state was violating his oath of office to the Maryland state constitution by numerous instances. In fact, this uh, we at Institute on the Constitution made a very uh, loud noise in the state and published it far and wide. Here are the violations of the governor, Governor Hogart's violations of the constitution. Here's the reasons he should be impeached. And we called upon every delegate in the House to impeach Hogan. And only one delegate stood up to do that. And of course, not having the backing of any other delegates at all, uh, his impeachment attempt went nowhere. But the fact that uh, this delegate sitting right next to me here had not done his duty, that he swore an oath to obey the Constitution of the state of Maryland, and he, was, and he didn't do it. And he wants to, well, let's go amend the Constitution and make all sorts of changes in the, in the Convention of the States, and let's do all this stuff because of... If we're going to rescue America, we can rescue it by amending the Constitution. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You have a duty as a delegate in the House of Delegates to do your duty to impeach those who violate the existing Constitution, not an amended Constitution, but the existing Constitution, and you didn't do your job. So my point was, part of our great problem is we have legislators who don't know their job and are not doing their job. And we have citizens who don't know the standard by which they are to select uh, uh, House of Delegates, select senators, select congressmen, select the president. You know, they don't know the standard. And so, well, uh, of course, they're just going to vote for whoever, like you say, Phil, you know, gives them cell phones or food stamps or whatever that 
the current handout is that uh, is maybe not beer and whiskey these days, but those other handouts. And so the problem is that until the people know the standard and they know the law, uh, then they're not going to be able to enforce that. And, and that was the job of the Levites. Now, I believe the Levites failed, and that's part of the reason why uh, Israel was in such a mess during the days of the judges. But uh, if the Levites had done their job, which was to train every single citizen in the Hebrew Republic in the law so that they all knew what the law was. And so if they were called to serve on a jury, they would know what the law said. They would know whether injustice would be done. They would know if there's a violation or not. And, and so the people have to be trained. And in America, our founders did not provide public education. There was no public education in the founding era. It wasn't until the oh, 1830s that that movement began. And by the 1850s, it had gotten on full steam. And almost all the states by then had some form. But early on, they had an institution in mind that they believed would fulfill this job of educating the citizens about what law is and what law is not, such that they could uh, uh, clearly uh, uh, train citizens. And that institution is parallel to the Levites in the Hebrew Republic, and it is the Church of Jesus Christ. That's right. The founders said they knew that our Constitution would not, would not work for any but a moral and religious people. And they trusted that the churches would be effective in making disciples of Jesus Christ, leading people to faith in Christ, understand the gospel, make disciples who understand the law of God, understand what the word of God says about every area of life, including what the word of God says about law and government, and uh, that the churches would be the tool to effectuate that accomplishment, that the that that our, our republic would be preserved because the people were a moral and religious people, and the people knew what the word of God said about law, what's just and unjust, and the people, therefore, kept the government within the boundaries of, of those standards. Well, clearly and quite obviously, that has failed. The churches have failed to do that. In fact, the, the churches today, I, I'm, I'm on the hot seat in my particular fellowship of churches, Evangelical Free Church of America, because I speak about law and government from the pulpit. Oh, horror of horrors. And yes, there are pastors who are horrified that I preach about such things, and I talk about the practical application of what God's word says about law and government to our situation today. They say, oh, you're preaching politics. No, 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 not politics. I'm preaching the moral system, the ethical system established in God's word regarding law and government. That's not politics. That's a biblical ethics that is being preached and teach. But so uh, I have to, Phil, I have to take a great deal of uh, burden upon my class of citizens, the clergymen in America, who have failed to do their duty as designed by our founders, that same function of the Levites to train the people in law and government. And I would say that whatever system we propose, we've got to have an effective means by which people are trained in law uh, and government as well. well. What's your thoughts, Phil? Well, I am fascinated by your description of the uh, of the republic that arises out of uh, uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, this is, and, and particularly the role of the, the Levites, which is a formalization of engaging all of the citizens in the law such that they understood the law. Uh, now, no doubt in those days, uh, many thought that the law was comprehensive and, and perhaps a little bit too, too much to, uh, to understand, but it was simple by comparison with the, the, just the, the apartment level, if you will, multi-story level of laws that uh, encumber the citizenry today. So I think the, the key here... Uh, 
what that demonstrates is that, yes, there was an early republic, and we should learn a great deal from it. But also, the issue is engagement. If your citizenry is not engaged, you cannot have representative government. It is just that simple. You can have something called democracy, and democracy is basically what H.L. Mencken uh, described it as. It's aggregated ignorance, and it ultimately leads to tyranny. So I guess that's my my reaction to your comments. I'm absolutely in agreement with them, and I'm glad you added that. No, well, thank you, and and I like the idea that uh, we need to recognize that unless you know there is an effective education system, and like you say, engagement, which which your design here of saying, look, uh, if a person's not paying any taxes, well, then they don't get to vote. It's like perfect. I mean, only the people who have skin in the game. They're the ones that uh, get to make the decision about who is going to represent them. Uh, uh, but uh, I guess our, our big challenge would be to say we've got to have a course uh, of study. And by the way, I, I certainly offer Institute on the Constitution's course that <laughs> currently is uh, on our U.S. Constitution, but such a design course as well. But we have to have a course by which we can measure, does a person in a test have an adequate understanding of uh, our system of government such that we can entrust them with the, the power to vote. Now, I know the pushback we're going to get for such an idea is, how dare you? You're going to disenfranchise all these people. And that's, a, you know, this is a, our basic right is a right to vote. If I'm 18 years old and I'm breathing, then I should be able to vote. But I think what happens that in that uh, statement is that people fail to realize that voting is not just some right or privilege. Voting is designed, according to our founders, to secure the God-given rights of not only of, of ourselves, but of our neighbor. So if we allowed voting to be simply, um, I want to vote the dollars that my neighbor accumulated at work during the last 40 hours of his working week, I want the, them to accumulate into my bank account, not his bank account. Oh, oh well, then everybody would vote to steal from everybody else. You know, <laughs> that's what would happen. No. The vote is supposed to secure the God-given rights of my neighbor as well as myself. In a sense, you could say this is part of Jesus's command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so when I vote, I don't want to vote to steal from my neighbor. I want to vote to preserve the property rights of my neighbor. I want to preserve his right to liberty. I want to reserve, preserve his right to life, all of those rights. And so if you don't have somebody who's uh, in that position of voting, who's voting according to that standard, they're going to vote selfishly. They're going to vote for their own interests uh, and and reject that. And, and I look at the, well, we had somebody like AOC, who I think was proposing a, I think it was a 95% tax. That is, you know, somebody's making a certain amount of money. Well, you're going to take 95% of what they make. Why would that person even bother to work after that? You know, it'd be like that. That's, that's you're going to steal 95% of the fruit of their labor. Now, that's a, a form of serfdom or almost absolute slavery, uh, and who would tolerate that? But we've got people in Congress who believe this, who believe in stealing from their neighbors. That's that's what, and, and they're in office, and people put them in office. This is really the egregious thing. You see, it's bad enough, but the people who voted for her, it means those people want an elected representative who loves to steal. And the steal the, the the property of their neighbors as long as the 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 theft winds up benefiting them the voters and so these are the sort of people that well they shouldn't be voting because they're going to vote to take away the the god-given rights of their neighbor well there is no such thing as a 
right to vote. If we look at all rights, basically their their foundation is the natural law. I have never seen any reference in the natural law to the idea that people have a right to vote. I mean, consider uh, a newborn coming out of the mother's womb, um, immediately arriving and insisting on his or her right to vote. I mean, we look at that and we say that's absurd. That's why we've established under a law, and almost arbitrarily, by the way, that the lower limit must be 18 years of age, at an age at which the typical person has accumulated enough knowledge, should have accumulated enough knowledge to cast an intelligent vote. And for a long period of time, uh, women were not allowed to vote. And if you look at this historically, uh, voting has been tied to property. You notice under the new system, there is no connection with property at all. It is all merit-based. It is all about who is capable of being engaged in the gov- government's operation as a citizen and who is capable of voting intelligently. There's nothing more than that. Now, I should emphasize that as, as voting is not a right, to anybody. Neither is it a privilege to be granted by government. It is granted as a result of the law. And the people ultimately, through their representatives, make the law. In that uh, debate I had with the with the delegate the, the last week, um, one of the things I emphasized to the audience is that they needed to evaluate their candidates very carefully. And the very first question they ought to ask every candidate is a real simple one that anybody that's read the Declaration of Independence would know the answer to. But oddly, most candidates I've ever asked this question to get it wrong. And the question is real simple. It's this. What is the purpose of government? And the Declaration of Independence makes it abundantly clear. The purpose of government is to protect the God-given rights of the people. Nothing more. Not to redistribute wealth. Not to educate children. Not to, you know, not to do thousand things that the government, federal, state, and local do today, but only to protect the God-given rights of the people. So the people can take care of uh, what what uh, their responsibility is. So, for example, many people talk about the right to health care. What? 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 There's no such thing. There is no right to health care, but there is a right to keep the fruit of your labor, your property, so that you then can take care of your own health care and the health care of your family. Uh, it, but the more the government steals from you, the less you have to take care of your own health care and that of, uh, of your family. So the, the thing has gotten so backwards because people have like, you know, you're talking about voting as a people perceive of that as a right. It's not a right. Health care is not a right. There's a long list of things that people have come to accept today as rights that are not uh, rights because you can measure it simply this way, that if I have the power to stop my neighbor from doing something, then that power to stop them from doing that is a right. So do I have the power uh, to stop my neighbor from you know, eating Cheetos? But you need, Cheetos may not be very good for your health, uh, but that's his decision. He has a right to choose what he eats and pay the consequences. But does he have a right to turn around and say, hey, I've got all these medical consequences from eating Cheetos and you're going to have to pay for it? No, 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 no. That's theft. That's not a right. So again, w- we need that, that worldview that comes from the idea that there is a supreme God who created all the universe and all the laws of the universe. And the laws of the universe he created are not just those physical laws of chemistry and mathematics and physics and gravity and so on, but he created the moral laws of the universe that are as unalterable 
and as fixed as each of those physical laws of the universe. So thou shalt not steal is a law of the universe. When you break that law, you're not only spitting in the creator's face, you're violating your neighbor's God-given rights. Neighbor's made in the image of God and has a right to property, and you're violating his property rights, but you're also destroying your own soul in the process of becoming a thief. And in addition to that, you're destroying uh, the community, the society around you, because the more theft uh, predominates, uh, the more people are insecure. They've got to take uh, special uh, actions and so forth to protect their property. I was reading about a city up the street here from me, uh, Baltimore, 5,356 auto thefts in the city since January 1st up until uh, the beginning of August. You know, not, not even all of August, but just part. So seven months, more than 5,000 automobiles have been stolen. Some of those stolen as, as carjacking, stolen at gunpoint. And, you know, if your car is stolen, you've got a huge problem on your hand. I read about one woman who, uh, you know, they, they, she had two kids in the back seat and they came in and stuck a gun at the kid's head, stuck a gun on her head. And so ultimately she was left standing in the parking lot with her two children and all of the rest of her possessions gone in the car that was now stolen from her. What an egregious, evil, and wicked thing. But that's what happens when you cultivate an idea in the minds of people that stealing is somehow okay, somehow justified. And little kids, teenagers, and many of these are juveniles committing these crimes in Baltimore. Juveniles, you know, 12, 13, 14-year-olds get the idea in their head. I don't own a car. I don't have the money to own a car, but that guy owns a car and I want what he has. This, by the way, is a violation of the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And the covetous is the beginning of the process of moving towards actually stealing the item that you covet. And so he goes and gets a gun and steals the car that he hasn't worked for and deprives the other person of his property rights. So when you have a culture that encourages theft, and I would argue our civil government encourages theft because now, quite frankly, they're the biggest thieves of all when they violate our constitution in, in their taxing of us in the way they tax us, not necessarily that the taxes themselves are wrong, but the way they're taxing us is unconstitutional. When they demonstrate that they are thieves, well, what does the general populace conclude? Thievery must be good. So why don't we go steal things? You could say the same thing about abortion. Abortion has been, up until the overturning of Roe v. Wade here, it has been the government's position that abortion is constitutional. In fact, abortion is so supported that the government will pay for the murder of these babies. And hmm, you raise up a generation of children that know they are only alive because their mother made a decision, maybe at the flip of a coin, to keep them instead of murder them. So murder is so right that the government supports the murder. And so should it be any surprise then that the murder rate in America has exploded when a generation of, of children grow up knowing that there's millions of fellow citizens of the, that generation who were murdered and never came to birth. But they were the lucky ones. They made it through the gauntlet and they actually survived. So uh, government sets the standard by its actions quite often. And when that standard is to, to steal and to kill and destroy, well, then you see citizens who are doing exactly what the government has taught them to do. I encountered uh, an example of the relationship between um, two rights, uh, the law and citizen engagement over this past week. And the story was uh, related by Katrina Trinko, the editor-in-chief of The Daily Signal. It was about um, an event that uh, was scheduled to come off at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, where a professor, George, from Princeton University was going to be talking about dialogue 
uh, free speech on campus and that sort of thing. And of course, that offended the, the left. They showed up with bullhorns, loud music, and all the disruption that's necessary. But the key event in that was that uh, a key protester yelled out at the appropriate moment, um, how did Hitler come to power? And that's a very complicated question. The historians have wrestled over it. There are at least six factors that could be considered, but none of them was, and of course, everybody was shocked and said nothing. Um, and none of them uh, was the answer that was given by the protester. They gave him a platform. Well, if anybody understood that period of time, and it, by the way, it's documented very well by William L. Shire uh, in his uh, classic, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Uh, if anybody had read through that book, they would understand that the German people never gave Hitler a platform. He read it, the, uh, the Hofbräuhaus <laughs> in Munich. At a high cost, his, his committeemen uh, thought he was crazy, that he would never be able to fill the home, which he did, by the way. And that was the beginning of his rise to power. So the real answer to that question was, how did Hitler come to power? And the answer was by using the exact tactics that this individual was using. Well, how do we deal with that in society? I looked up Maryland law, and there is law on the books dealing with disruption of, of the peace and, and so forth. And you spend six, uh, 60 days in jail and are fined. $500 or more for every violation. Nobody stepped in and charged these individuals. How do we expect, how do we expect to finally turn down this violence, these Hitler, Hitler type tactics, this intimidation that leads to tyranny? How do we ever expect to turn that back if people are not engaged? I sent the, the details of this to both Professor George to a pre Professor Prudhomme at the college who was involved in this, and also to Katrina Trinko, and have received no response. What kind of engagement by the citizenry do we have in a situation like this? That is tragic. Uh, indeed, yes, because there is the freedom of speech being trampled upon uh, by, uh, you know, Nazi-like, like you say, Nazi-like tactics are being used to trample on freedom of speech, all in the name of uh, somehow... I don't know what, what they're, what they're, I think it was the LGBT issue that they were objecting to, or was it something else, Phil? Um, from what I understand, they, they have multiple objections to Professor George. He's considered to be on the right philosophically. I can't picture that he's too far on the right coming, you know, being at Princeton. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, uh, it could very well be that they, they are offended by his position on life for LGBTQ or, or what have you. But they rationalized their actions by, they themselves set themselves up as, as the judges. They were judge, jury, and executioner in this case. Now, picture a society in which every individual has the right to do what they did. It's absolute anarchy and chaos. It has to be stopped. And that's why we enable law to implement um, you know, some kind of sanction against those people who would violate constitutional law. The constitutional law is meaningless unless you have the statutes behind it, and if you have the backbone to uh, enact the, the statutes, to take physical action against these violators. And, and so, Phil, in that situation at, at uh, Chestertown, the Washington College, did the police or the, I guess, uh, campus security do nothing? They just let the protesters uh, or the violent anarchists do their thing? 
the college did nothing, rationalizing that they couldn't do anything, and yet their own student uh, code of conduct uh, states that uh, no student will be involved in harassment of speakers. They ignored their own code of conduct. Well, in, a, in other words, they're getting what they deserved because if they won't enforce the code of conduct and say these students are going to be expelled, uh, you know, the campus security are going to come and arrest the protesters and drag them out. Um, they're part of the problem. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They, as H.L. Mencken had, had stated, they're going to get it good and hard. Good and hard. And, and that's tragic because so when when you lose freedom, as, as our founders said, it's it, uh, it's not something that uh, is available easily. It costs a great deal of blood and treasure, which it did to found our constitutional republic. It costs uh, uh, some men their entire fortune and other men, it certainly costs them their lives. Once it's established and then lost, it's extremely hard to reestablish it. Uh, and uh, what, what I'm praying for is a revival in the hearts and minds of Americans who will love freedom, love liberty, and want to see that liberty restored to our land that uh, that that we have been losing steadily, but it, it seems like the uh, the erosion has actually taken extreme paces since uh, 2020, and it seems to just have exploded that summer of love in 2020, and that that kind of ridiculous thing that that we saw taking place. Well, clearly there has been a a deterioration of the rule of law um, that was very apparent in 2020. Uh, the so-called Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, the, those demonstrations, which were clearly violent. I mean, you saw the destruction of property, you saw the looting, you saw uh, so much that violated the law and, of course, ultimately our basic rights as citizens. And so what I was suggesting in terms of the role of the Levites is really what we're doing here, we the people, the Constitution matters, trying to create a grassroots movement of people who understand the principles of law and government, understand our founders' view of law and government, and seek to restore that view in their own thinking, in that of their children, their fellow citizens, their fellow churchgoers, and basically all across the country. We need a revival to take place that takes us back to the founder's view, which basically can be summarized in the first couple of paragraphs there of the Declaration of Independence. There is a creator God, the God of the Bible. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and secure those God-given rights. That's what we do here. We, the people, Constitution Matters. We invite you uh, to join us next Friday morning at 8 a.m. But also check out the podcast. If you go to uh, the website, 1180wfyl.com, click on podcasts, and all the way down the very bottom of the list is We, the People, the Constitution Matters. A wealth of education is available to you to help restore the republic. And that's why we are here at We the People, the Constitution Matters.